Many of you will have seen Osher Ginsberg's smiling face whizzing past on billboards or on TV or have heard his voice on the radio airwaves sizzling with wit, musicality and a truckload of energy. An author, television and radio presenter, musician, journalist and podcaster, in fact his podcast Better Than Yesterday has been downloaded 4.3 million times. Osher is one of Australia's most recognisable media personalities and has been a guest in the living rooms of Australians for decades. However, behind the talented and entertaining face and voice loved by so many, in this conversation we meet a soulful, reflective and wise human who's not only worked hard for his extraordinary success but dug deep in the darkest of places to explore the complexities of living with mental illness so that he can forge a way to live an authentic, rich and fulfilling life. On the cusp of the age of 50, we learn what it's really like being Osher, where he finds his moments of flow, how his wife Audrey saved his life, and why his different brain is his absolute superpower. Here's our chat with Osher. So, Osha, I've actually just spent the last two days in bed with you. I've got a cold and I thought, what am I going to do to make myself feel better in preparation for our chat today? Why not get into bed with Osha on Audible? And I do now feel so much more connected to you. I appreciate that's a one-way connection now. Hopefully in 60 (laughs) minutes it will be a more of a two-way gig. So my first impressions of you before spending the weekend in bed with you was what a lot of people would see. That's the, the celebrity and the high energy and the big screen and the TV and the radio. And yet your book, which I just absolutely loved, has shown obviously a very different picture for you. Tell us what it's really like to be Osha. I am who I am. I'm I'm nearly 50. Uh, most of me is nearly 50. There's one part of me that's only five months old. That's a recent <laughs> hip replacement. So bits of me are now titanium. Uh, and there's some ceramic in there as well. So I, I now, for life, don't ever get behind me at the airport, ever. If you see me at the airport, <laughs> jump in front of me in the line. No problem with that at all. So I'm carrying about a kilo worth of metal in my body. I don't know what's it like to be me. I don't know. I've got a I've got a different brain. Sometimes I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, and social phobia. I'm, I manage most of those things pretty well through a small amount of medication, exercise, mindfulness, journaling, and uh, regular visits to my therapists, my doctors. Uh, you know, occasionally, I can still get stuck. Occasionally, like it happened yesterday, I got quite fixated. I can get. Uh, my career hasn't suffered because of obsessive compulsive disorder. I can get shit done. Mm. You know, my brain has a bit of a superpower actually and I find a great amount of productivity and and focus at my disposal when I want it. Unfortunately, it sometimes can happen that I – I get intensely focused on things that are irrelevant to the situation at hand. And that happened yesterday. And I had to, you know, I had to make amends for that in the moment. I had to understand what it was that I was doing. And then once I've got my ego got out of the way of like, how do you tell me that I'm doing something that's not good? Uh, mm. <laughs> um, it's like, oh God, you're right. Sorry. I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I still manage it. I still deal with it, mm. but that's what I've got. You know, that's, uh, that's what's going on. That's how I live my life and because of how the management processes that I have in place to deal with my brain, I, I'm really grateful for the life I get to live. I, I live a very 
often quite deliberate life. I live a life where I am, I try to be far more present and emotionally aware of what's going on. I try really hard to be noticing uh, emotions quite a bit. And as a result, I kind of relish in it. I just maybe an hour ago, I put Wolfie down for his midday nap a bit late. You know, I'm having a, a chance to, I'm singing him a little song to go to sleep and my brain's wondering, my brain's wondering, but I'm like, come on, man. And then I got to like kind of really be in this moment looking into this little boy's eyes as he fell mm. asleep in my arms, which he doesn't do much anymore. Mm. And uh, in the past, I would have just kind of been like, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do. I wonder if that's, uh, I've got to fix that thing. I've got to go upstairs and work on that. Because of the training that I've been trying to work on and help my body get and my brain get more used to noticing when my brain runs away, coming back to the moment, that allowed me to have that really special moment with Wolf that will be a great memory. Mm. At what age do you think you thought, mm, my brain my brain is different? Like when did it kind of, you have that self-reflection uh, and recognition point? Oh, I think other people had it before me. I remember going to psychiatrists when I was about five. So something was up. Don't know what it was. And um, unfortunately, all the people that I could ask aren't really capable of answering that question anymore. And, you know, when you are going through your life as a teenager or whatever, you know, it's just it is what it is and there's no reason to think that what you're perceiving is any different. Mm. You know, this is how the world is and, you know, this is how people are and this is exactly what's happening here. You never question Well, you, you can never get inside someone else's head or beh no. behind someone else's no, no, eyes no. ever, yeah, to get that real lived experience. No. Mm. But I was about, I think I was about 19, I think, when I thankfully, very thankfully got caught by the public health system in Queensland. Mm. And um, I first presented to a psychologist there at an outpatient facility. She brilliantly identified and, you know, full classic catches, slow-mo tips of the fingers grabbed me before I fell far deeper. And I'm really lucky that she did because she was the first person to really identify that, hang on, something's up here and you can... Um, you know, you can do some work and it doesn't have to always be like this. Was that around social anxiety? I remember there was two people. You you referenced so many therapists and also oh, so yeah. many mentors, so many people that have helped you along the, is it 47-year yeah. journey? Was it social anxiety that she was reflecting no, or diagnosing? at that point, no. At that point it was, I guess, I don't know, you know, I am not a doctor but I have paid for the private school education of a number of them. Um <laughs> Of their children, at least, uh, I um, I had an irrational fixation with sexually transmitted disease, mm. and I had showed up. And bear in mind, this is the early nineties when AIDS was still a thing mm. that was a death sentence. You would die if you got it, mm. and I was convinced that even the cheekiest little party pash with someone was enough to expose me. And I think I'd. I'd had three HIV tests or AIDS screenings in six months at the same clinic mm. and someone there must have picked up and gone, hang on, you, you've come here three times and the behaviours that you're listing are nowhere near, anywhere near risk behaviours. Mm. And they had a bit of a chat to me and said, why don't you go down the, what was it, Arthur Terrace or Arthur Place? I can't remember. It was out behind one of the nightclubs my band used to play at up in Brunswick Street in Brisbane. And um, she said, why don't you go see this lady and she'll just have a chat to you. And so they kind of thankfully, brilliantly identified that there was an obsessional mm. uh, and unhealthy paranoia about getting sick. 
that had nothing to do with reality. Through sexual behaviour yeah. was what the fear was. Yeah. Osher, it'd be yeah. great to yeah, yeah, yeah. understand a bit about you're from quite a big family. You're the second of four boys. It'd be great to understand a bit about your childhood. Where did you grow up? And what are the, you know, when you, when you think about um, your upbringing and your family, what role did they play in terms of the person you are today? Well, I'm two of four boys and we are the children of two people that were refugees at one point in their lives. Uh, two people who changed their names as well. Mm. So, you know, make of what you will about intergenerational trauma, but we, those who my parents were, you know, my my mum fled her country uh, when she was quite little. My dad fled his country in his early 20s and they were both displaced and um, it was kind of interesting, you know, back then when my mum uh, finally made it to Australia in the late 40s, they were called displaced persons. They weren't called refugees. They were persons who were displaced and the compassion and empathy that the community had for them was very different to mm. um, when we refer to people as refugees. So there's a lot of labelling that changes a lot of that, yeah. that discussion. Where did, they, where did they come from, Osha? Which, um, which uh, countries? Mum fled from Lithuania uh, when the Russians came in. And um, now bear in mind, they fled with the retreating German army. We have a fair idea of what the Germans were up to in World War II. So the Russians had previously been there. The Germans had pushed them out. And when the Russians were coming back, like that'll give you an idea of they would rather have left with the Germans than stay. <laughs> you know, it gives you an idea of how not okay the, the Russian situation was then. Mm-hmm. And some 20-something years later, my dad fled the same Russians when they crushed the Prague Spring in 68. Hmm. And so they both fled through various ways. They both ended up in the, in London and um, that's, where they, that's where they met. Now, bear in mind that I'm one of four kids, but I can only speak to my, my story. But we, you know, I, I grew up in Brisbane, you know, both my parents were, were doctors. So we, they're pretty scientific kind of people, very matter of fact kind of people. But yeah, they both had the experience that at any point, People with guns could show up and take it all away, and that changes here. You, you did, did they have to retrain, like when they came out here, to, um, and they were both qualified doctors in their own country? Did they, did they have to go through a retraining process here? You know, often when people, uh, immigrate? I think my dad, yeah, my dad definitely did. Yeah. yeah, my dad, my dad definitely did. But I think my mom did her early training here hmm. in Australia, and I think she went. She became an anaesthetist over in the UK, and I think, I don't know. Maybe a UK qualification was accepted back then. I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't right. quite born. I wasn't quite born you, at the time. You weren't. You I wasn't weren't, just. You I was barely born. <laughs> did, did they, I was a baby. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that you were just little. When did they talk about intergenerational trauma, or was that something you you no, gleaned later? Not really. I don't think it was. I don't think it was really a thing. Oh. You know, it wasn't until later on in my life when uh, I was in a relationship with a, a woman from Israel. That's kind of the first, mm. you know, time that I. You know, heard her describing. I don't know. There's a whole. There's a name for it here, and you know, this is there's the behaviours that people do, and I'm like, wow, that sounds like my grandma. Mm. You know, <laughs> and like, there's a whole field of psychology dedicated to it. I mean, it, you know, Israel's and an, you know a nation, you know, that is largely populated with people who survived Holocaust yeah. and, and horrific trauma, and and so they're like, well, we'd better figure out how to sort this out so we can get on and do our jobs and you know, school our kids and do whatever else we have to do to make a society. 
Mm. And uh, I didn't really think about it. You know, it's just how things were. And then it seemed there was a lot of commonalities there. Mm. Um, and, and you know, it, I've, I've since done a you know fair amount of reading and research and talking to doctors about it. And, yeah, the, um, the trauma profiles absolutely imprint mm. upon the kids in the, in the DNA of your – and that's, you know, as a dad, you know, I'm concerned about that and I'm certainly on the lookout for – some signs in my own kids. I mean, mm. one of them, she's not my biological kid, but I certainly keep a lookout and mm. make sure she's not picking up any habits from me. And and certainly with the youngest one, every now and again, he'll do something. I'm like, right, I know that. Okay, mm. well, I guess we're going to teach you how to emotionally regulate, which mm. is something that I mm. never learned. Is that, you know? Osha, um, picking up on something you said there, like that, it, you know, that the idea that it carries in the DNA, and even if it's not yes. explicit, like did your folks talk about that trauma or was it this felt sense you had that there was something traumatic that sat within your family scene? Yes and no. I think there was a lot of people from that generation that just didn't speak of it because of how horrific it was and it wasn't really fair to bring that kind of thing up. Certainly to people in Australia who at the time just wanted to watch Dennis Lilly do a fastball. You know, they they didn't know. Um, it was a pretty good distraction. And, yeah, Dennis Lilly is pretty good. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was just, you know, they didn't really talk about it much. Mum certainly didn't talk about it much until f- much later. Dad did talk about it. But, you know, I, I went back to Prague with my father and we had an adventure there in my mid-20s. Um, I was the same age he was when he'd fled, actually. Mm. And we walked around the streets of Prague and he stood there and, you know, he said, oh, yeah, and that's, you know, that's the street. I ran down and that's where the tank came and that's where I hid and that's where I ran. And, you know, he was 24. He was my age at the time when it happened. And it was interesting, you know, because I had known this guy my whole life and then suddenly I was like, all right, I'm just meeting you. Yeah, I, You know, I had no concept of the place that he was from nor what he had to go through. Mm. And, you know, I think we are a nation of immigrants, our whole country. There's mm. that many people in our community who have come to our country of Australia f- fleeing huge amounts of conflict, um, far worse than, you know, that which my parents fled. And it's important to understand that them, their kids and their, their kids' kids will be affected yeah. um, by what they went through and we need to support those people yeah. as much as possible. We, we can stop that energy from affecting the rest of us and we need to support those people. Yeah. Did they find their place in Australia, your parents? Yeah, absolutely. My, both my folks did a great job. I, mean, I remember at my, my mum's funeral, people showed up who, you know, I had, had no idea who they were, but they were former patients of hers. I mean, she was a, you know, she was a GP. She was a doctor for God. 50 years of her life. Mm. Uh, so she touched a lot of people. She she helped a lot of people and so did my father. My father, he worked in the as a rheumatologist mm-hmm. and he helped a lot of people. Uh, rheumatologists, you know, rheumatic disorders and arthritis, it's real quality of life stuff. There's no cure for it. It's just, okay, how do we make sure that you can have quality of life here? And so he really changed a lot of people's lives and, you know, both those people really made a difference in Brisbane, yeah. What's your understanding, Osher, of the, the nature-nurture contribution to who we are? And I know it's a million-dollar question with no simple answer. Oh, it's not really. It's pretty simple. It's, <laughs> research has been done. It's pretty much 50-50, uh, you know, <laughs> in the same way that my face is somewhat of a, you know, percentage 
of one of my parents and the other one of my parents. Mm. You know, there's certain shape factors of the way my eye, eyes sockets are, and my nose is shaped, and my chin is shaped, that are a a rough approximation of 100 percent of both my parents' DNA. Like that's how I ended up. I am a half and half of both those people, mm-hmm. and various permutations of that m- make up the faces of my brothers. You know, but we are all quite clearly from the same you know two people, mm. and the similarities don't stop there. You know, that's inside your body as well. My mum had a sticky-outy left rib. I have a sticky-outy left rib. Is that the, is that the medical it, term for it? <laughs> yes, it is. It's sticky-outy. Yeah. I think it's the f- first one that attaches to the, the, the – no, the first one after the sternum one. I can't remember what number it is. But there's ones that attach in the sternum, then there's a the first one that kind of floats around. That one hmm. is the one that sticky, is sticky-outy. And my mum had it. <laughs> I have it. Wolfgang has it. Oh, wow. We have, wow. yeah. So Three generations of. You can't, of sticky Addy. So <laughs> you can't tell me, you can't tell me that the way that our brains are wired is any different. Yes. And it would be foolish to think that. It'd yes. be foolish to think that. So there's that. So you can come, you come out, you know, with that ready to go. You've come out with that programming and the way your brain grows and the way those neurons grow after you know, in the first trimester, sorry, fourth trimester and beyond as your brain develops and grows as you get older and bigger, the roadmap for how that brain grows is based on the same DNA structure that, you know, the rest of you is, which is based on what your parents are. So mm. there's that. And then there's the the other 50%, which is what you do about it. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I'm, I might be seeing things. I might be, you know, I definitely want to check that Wolf is exhibiting you know, he's he's not got what I've got, that's for sure, but he can get quite particular about things. Like, all right then, well, if that gets any bigger, we'll, we'll you know, we'll definitely help you with that. Hmm. But I don't think my folks, yeah, they had four kids, man. They had four sons. Hmm. They were flat out just trying to keep the fridge full. They had no time to check on us, you know, yeah. and I yeah. get that. They did the best they could with the, with the tools they had. You know, it's fine. What part of their culture did, if not passed by DNA, but what part of their history and culture or did they pass on to you guys in the house growing up? Oh, I guess my folks were from two cultures that highly, highly, highly valued uh, education, work ethic and the arts. Mm. Uh, those things were really valuable things, particularly the arts were very, very valuable to both my parents' cultures. Music, visual art, performance art were enormously important. And these are two very scientific doctory people, mm. okay, and the visual art and music and these things, I guess, they feed the brain just as much as really dry medical journals and, you know, reading The Lancet from cover to cover do for for people who are in that job. So as kids, we were, I was, you know, really exposed to like a lot of music, a lot of performance, a lot of theatre, a lot of, that was just, a, you know, art galleries on the weekends. That was just a part of it. That's oh. what we did. Other people took their kids to football games. We went to orchestras. That's oh. what we did. And then as most people would know, you have had a very successful career on the stage, as we know, television, radio, in bands, um, musically. You've talked about the power of being on stage as being a time, or if not on stage, in front of a camera, when the fear stops, when there's a sense of control, would you say, or you, you, you feel a sense of control in that setting? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. What happens for you in that space? Oh, look, anyone who's hit the perfect golf swing or done the, the, the perfect bottom turn on a surfboard or just made the tennis racket go ping, <laughs> um, 
you know, or I'm still trying made to do a that really one. excellent, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, yeah, or the perfect pull shot, or what else can you do when you really get that Jenga block right there, bang, you know, <laughs> or you, you hit the draw four and destroy your, your, your small children on, you know, you know, like <laughs> it's that. You've got it's so that. many it's examples. <laughs> yeah, you well, you know, it. not everyone, not everyone plays golf or tennis. <laughs> no. Um, or surfs, but it's that. It's that moment of pure flow. It's mm. just blissful. It's perfect. And and it's those moments that are just, they're tiny. I don't know. Kelly Slater, uh, who's the greatest, most successful male surfer in the history of the game, sport, if you added up all the time that he's spent on waves in finals to win those championships, it's probably about, I don't know, six minutes mm. yeah. of his whole life in 15-second chunks. You know, and even then, the turns that won him those things are probably less than a second. Yeah. yeah. You know, but those moments live and that, that's all you need. You just, ah, oh, that's right. When you're not in flow or in pursuit of flow is mm. what's that state? Is it the imposter that so many of us have when we're performing or what, what state are you in when you're not in that beautiful flow state? Um, I'm much better these days, but I'm generally I generally try to stay productive, and that is like a productive use of my time. I I haven't just sat around and just flicked through the telly to see what's on for years. Like if I've got time, I, I generally like to keep my brain busy, and that can involve putting on a podcast and doing some housework or writing something or. Now, you know, obviously looking after kids is is a big part of that. But I generally do like to keep busy. I don't I don't do well not doing stuff. My wife often she has a it's not a complaint. It's more of a reflection. Grie- grievance. <laughs> no, I'm gonna call it an observation. <laughs> it's an issue. She has an issue with the action adventure holidays I always want to go mm. on. It's like, what the fuck are we doing getting out of bed at five in the morning, <laughs> Sydney time? Like I wanna sleep in. What do you mean we're going scuba diving? <laughs> Like, sorry, honey. Like, <laughs> got to do stuff. Can't sit around. Not good at sitting around. Is there downtime, pause, relaxation? And if so, what does it look like? Um, yeah, it's riding a bicycle or training or, you know, I've recently I bought this beautiful uh, hiking backpack that Wolf can stay in, oh, I think, until he's 20, 20-something kilos. Yeah, so oh, I love putting Wolf in the backpack. We go on an adventure. It's actually a really great way to see... Uh, and go for a walk with your little kids because when they're in the, the trolley, the baby trolley, what do you call it, the pram, you know, it's kind of hard to see what they're looking at or where they're looking or, yeah. you know, having conversations about what you're looking at. But when he's there, his head is lit, is like right above my head. He sees just his chin is right above my <laughs> occipital bone. So he he can see what I'm seeing and we can point at things and look at things and explore the flowers. We can both touch yeah. the things at the same time. And it's really cool, man. It's it's And being present and really tuned into those moments is, is glorious. Like it always goes too fast, you know. The little window of opportunity between snacks and naps is not very long. Um, but. <laughs> But I really appreciate it. It's it's a very nice life, that toddler You know, life. by the time you wake them up and get the brekkie into them and then get them ready to go and then you get on the road and get walking and then you've, you know, you've only got a certain amount of time before you've got to get back to the house Yeah, <laughs> get them to yeah, sleep. Totally. It's a different and, which is fine, which is fine because, you know, in 15 years from now he'll be doing what the other one is doing, which is can I have the car keys, please? And yeah, and, and, and the rest. <laughs> How has he coming into your life, um, Osha, what has been most surprising about becoming a father to him? How has it changed your relationship with yourself or the world? I guess it's, you know, knowing my body 
how wonderfully and gratefully addicted I am to the oxytocin release when I'm around him. Mm. As someone who's been sober for 11 years, I'm I'm really present to things that give me that feeling. And I am, you know, there's a lot of things I've had to cut out of my life because I can have a, a you know, very unhealthy relationship with them. I don't have Instagram on my phone. I don't have Twitter on my phone. I don't have Facebook on my phone. I don't have any of those things on my phone because, you know, you can get addicted to those those little squirts of dopamine and serotonin that can show up from getting a like or something. And uh, I'm certainly someone that can do that and have done that in the past. And But when it's a little toddler, mm. then guns blazing, man, I'm diving in. And it's amazing. You know, he sounds like a glorious. dangerous drug. <laughs> he yeah, like he's my favourite. Drug. He's the yeah, best. Yeah. He's so much fun. He's, you know, it's, it's like a, he's a little mate and it's the best and I can't wait to hang out with him. Mm. And it's great. You know, I was really aware of when he got born, you know, just sniffing his head mm. was, I just feel my the fireworks going off in my brain, just feeling those new neural pathways because when it's only recently been found out actually that when babies are born, there's a there's explosion of brain growth in the mature adult male to help them cope with the situation, and mm. so I have this all this new new neural connection and new new brain cells that have gone into my drug addled and <laughs> beer destroyed brain. Yeah, it's really it's really fascinating, you know. I mean, I already had, I mean, I already had it with G. You know, she was just mm. uh, my girlfriend's kid, you know, and mm. then she's just suddenly she's just like, oh my god, I'd do anything for you. I would even die if it meant that you would be okay. Mm. And that was really fascinating. So I'm, you know, quite, I mean, I'm an alcoholic, so therefore I'm by definition a selfish asshole. So that was really fascinating to to go, right, wow, there you go. It's not about me anymore. (laughs) You've also talked about, yeah, that's what kids do for us, isn't it? They they force us to hold a mirror up. I still battle with it. I still battle with my ego, that's for sure. Yeah. That's an honest reflection because we all do. We all do. And yeah. it's not like you, you have children, yeah. whether they're biological or stepchildren, and suddenly push yourself to the curb. You've talked about putting yourself first a lot. What's happened to that now? Because you're so, you, you, <laughs> I perceive you as so highly empathetic, so very in tune with other people's needs and experiences and stories. Well, I think that's the... Alcoholism is a is a very selfish uh, disease, and eventually you put your own needs just a, above the needs of anything else, including your own health and your own ability to, you know, survive. And you continue these behaviours that you know are bad for you, but you can't stop them. Now. I do try very hard to have empathy, but like I said to you at the start of this conversation, you know, I can get, I can still get caught up in things and I can still get caught up in it and then go into this very interesting zone. And it's only when Audrey, in the kindness of her heart, goes, What are you doing, you idiot? And after I've gone, I'm not doing anything, I go, Oh, hang on a second. You know, sorry about that. I was. And it still happens, you know, but that's a, that's just how it is. We're blessed to have two cars in our house. One of them's a European spec and so one's got the car seat, the other one doesn't. So when I'm on the other car, I've got to turn left and I turn the windshield wipers on. Like all the evidence is there. You know, like I know that the car is different. I know the levers are on the different sides. I'm, it's all there, but I still do old behaviours. Yeah. 
it's giving myself like, oh, that's right, it's still in there. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it's still in there. But, you know, just being giving yourself the, the a bit of grace around that, I think. Mm. I mean, it happens less, I'd like to think. Mm. Audrey would probably disagree. Well, no, Audrey <laughs> sounds like the most power. If you could bottle Audrey and sell her, she would be a bestseller. She's changed your life, hasn't she? Oh, absolutely. She saved my life, mate. And saved yeah. your life. Yeah. What is Absolutely it that Audrey does? What is, what's Audrey's, you know, secret sauce that saves a life, saves uh, your life? I think because she had, she had kindness, she had empathy and she gave me, she was the first person to kind of say, look, even if the most ter- terrifying thing that you think is going to happen happens, I'll be here mm. and it'll be okay. We'll figure it out. And she was the first – it somehow worked that time. I mean, other people had told me, but it just didn't work. But they didn't have what she had and somehow I just believed her mm. and it just worked. And she was also very kind in that she saw me and my sick brain as two separate things. Yeah. Um, and that was really – I was really grateful for that. Yeah, it was a real breakthrough and which is, you know, it's it's hard to have empathy for someone who is behaving erratically or weird or paranoid or whatever. But rather than go, they're weird or paranoid. Like there's something that is making them weird or paranoid. Mm. They're probably having a terrible time as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. What do you think? There'll be people who are listening. Who, in fact, I was speaking to someone in the last few days who lives with really severe social anxiety. And in his job, he's amazing and he says he has such a sense of control in the job that he does. So it's kept at bay. But then when he finds himself in a social setting, it's it's unbearable. So hearing you speak, I wonder how you would, if not everyone can find themselves an Audrey, what can we do to tell ourselves that we're not our diagnosis and that there's a separate part of us to the part of us that's um, in pain? Look, I think this is where it takes a lot. You've got to do the work. You don't accidentally have good physical health. You don't accidentally get fit enough to run a marathon. You don't accidentally get a six-pack. You know, these things take a lot of work and commitment and continued effort. So you don't you don't accidentally have good mental health. You mm. actually have to do work and you have to commit to it and you have to take do things every day just as you would if you were, you know, training for a marathon or triathlon or something. You would have to eat in a certain way and train a certain amount every day and, you know, get to bed at a certain time and restrict certain things in your diet and look out how much alcohol you're drinking and be careful of who you're hanging around with, such and such. Same thing with your mental health. So I think this is a, a thing where, you know, just understand, I guess, that you have a lot more power over it than you might think and it's not going to change unless you put the work in, all right? No, you're not going to go and sit on a shrink's couch and they're going to say some magic words and it's all going to go away. Mm. You're going to have to put some work in. Mm. And the work is worth it. I do the work every day and it's worth it. But, yeah, you're going to have to put some work in. And, and a big part of that starts with your thoughts are not, you know, fear isn't facts. Mm. You're th- you know, just because just you think it doesn't make it real. And even if you are 100% sure that, you know, this person is, you know, being a bastard, like, okay, I'm thinking that, but are they? Is mm. it? What's mm. going on here? What's my, what am I making out of the situation? Does any part of my reaction here not belong here in this moment? Am I having a, a, a reaction that belongs perhaps with an old boss or an ex 
husband or ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Ah, ah, okay then. Ah, I see what's happening here. You know, it's it's important, and and that as well, and particularly with social anxiety. It sounds like you've done so much deep I've, work, Osha, oh, yeah, and, and I, like gone to hard, hard ass places. You know that you've detailed yeah. in your book and so openly. And um, do you see yourself as? you know, as your sickness, as you called it, or mental health um, as separate from you? Like in terms of your own identity, how have you um, redesigned or, or rethought that? Um, I don't know if I see it separate from me. I don't think I see it much different to my arthritic hip that I needed to get replaced and I'm now I'm trying to rehab. Mm. You know, it's a part of it's a part of me. It doesn't define who I am. It doesn't divine, define what I'm going to do, but it is just it is something I have to be aware of and something that I have to – make allowances for and something that I have to sometimes tell people about. Mm. Yeah. Um, and doesn't mean that I won't then for be able to do the job or connect with them emotionally or whatever it is I need to do for them. You know, it's a factor and that's okay. It's just a part of it. It's not everything. Yeah. But it's just a thing that I've got and that's all right. Y- you had a great strategy um, in your book that you say, of course, at the start of a sentence. Mm. Tell me about that. Well, it's, it's not mine. I, um, I nicked it from a, a, a book about alcoholic recovery for Buddhists. Mm. <laughs> and uh, of course is a great one because of course is it's a way of very quickly reframing any kind of victim-y uh, thinking or victim-like thinking or downtrodden, I can't believe they did this to me thinking. Mm. You know, an example that, I would give is, I say you put an offer in to buy a house, all right, and they picked someone else. Like, oh, my God, I can't, you know, we're never going to get a house or they picked someone else to get the house or they accepted someone else's offer or such and such and such and such. You just put, of course, in front of it. Of course, they picked someone else's offer. Of course, we missed out on the house, (laughs) you know. Why? You know, because, you know, what's the market requires them to pay this much more money and, and we didn't have that. Of course. Does it mean anything about us? No. So it helps you depersonalise to some degree. Yes. But when it's a positive experience, like imagine if you said, of course Audrey loves me. Could it work for the positive? Of course she does because I'm lovable. It's a little trickier, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a little tricky to get that stuff around, but yeah, sure. Let's say, but that's the stuff that needs work and that's the stuff you need to work on. And, you know, it's important to have that and just remind yourself, but it's like, Look, it's like it's like changing gears in a manual car, right? The first time you did it, it was very hard. But you practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And now, you know, no one drives manuals anymore. But you now you don't even think about it. I have a manual motorbike, so I think about changing gears quite a bit. Mm. But now, you know, I've had it for a while. I don't really think about it too much. Yeah, you don't think about it. So you do have to, though, you do have to kind of remind yourself, you know, I'm, you know, I'm no better than anybody and nobody's better. Nobody's any better than me. Everyone's just trying to get through their day and make sure their kids are fed and, you know, make sure they sleep safely tonight. That's it. Yeah. You know, we're just trying to, everyone's trying to get to bed with a full tummy, safe, and have their kids do a little better in life than they did. That's it. Everyone's exactly the same. Hey, can I, uh, you just talked about your motorbike and you can shift gears manually. Can I do a gear shift and ask, you uh, changed your name when you were, what, 38, 39, something like that? From something like that, yeah. Andrew to Osher after what? you call a spiritual awakening. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the role that kind of spiritualism or religion plays in your life? I'm not religious. Uh, I don't believe in any kind of interventionist God. Uh, I understand that people may want to do that because it helps them with the mental health to believe that somebody's got this. 
Great. That's fine. Good for you. I'm happy for you. I don't, and I think that's why I worry about the world so much because I know that people are in charge. I changed my name. You know, it's just a similar story to I'm sure many other people have been through it. You know, I met a Kabbalist mystic in a, in the Middle East somewhere who told me that if I changed my name, I'd change my life, and I did, and it did. It certainly was a way to put a, you know, delineation between sobriety version of me yeah. and who I was before that. The spiritual reasons around it, uh, they weren't anything that required a belief in some sort of magical force from the ether or a big person with a beard in the sky. It was all very much in alignment with how I feel about the world. And I'm, I'm certainly one that just believes that we are all governed by the fundamental laws of physics that govern the movement of every single atom in our bodies as much as they do with us, with each other. And that energy always tries to find equilibrium. The negative energy will always try to come back to a neutral point or positive energy will always come back to a neutral point. And that's generally how I felt about life at the time. And I found this, you know, really interesting way of talking about that that seemed to be quite ancient and it really resonated with me. And at the time, I really needed it. Mm. I don't know if I feel that way so much at the moment, mm. but I still appreciate the rebrand. Yeah. How did you come up with Osha? I want to know the other names that were on the on the card. No, I just met a really I just met a really cool guy and his name was Osha. I'm like, that's a cool name. And he's he's smoke, he was smoking a cigarette as all Israelis do. Well, not all of them, most of them. So no, not most of them, some of them. Uh he was smoking a cigarette. He's an ex-commando. Most of them are ex-commandos, that is true. And I said, That's a cool name. And he goes, You know what it means? I said, What? He goes, it means happiness. <sighs> and then he flicked his dart, you know, as you know. I was like, I want what he's having. Happiness. That's a pretty cool name, man. I dig it. And he was a cool cat. So I'm like, it's a good enough name for me. I'm on that. Let's go. <laughs> and that's fine. And I'm not the first person in my family to change my name. My parents both change their names. And, yeah. um, you know, there's plenty of people in our sure. community that change their names. Yeah, plenty. it's a, a fresh and start, a, a way to start to, to start again in oh, some way. I think, it, you know, there's plenty of people that have come to our country from, you know, various other nations that have multi-syllabic, multi you know, um, consonant mm. first names, which are very difficult for uh, Anglo-Australians to get their tongues around. They're like, just call me Jackie. All mm. right? That's fine. I'll be Jackie today. Mm. All right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it's uh, it becomes, you know, who you are. This is me in this country when I'm speaking to white people and there's you, everybody else at home and in my home country calls me that. Yeah. That's fine. Osha, you're also very passionate about the environment about uh, and you're a, you're a vegan or a pl- you eat a plant-based diet. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I just want the kids to be okay mm. and that's it. And for me, wanting the kids to be okay means, well, they need air to breathe and they need to be able to survive 48-degree Sydney summers and those things are coming and there's no denying it. You know, that'll be all I want to do, you know, and, and that's that, if that legacy means I'll make sure my kids are okay means I better get to a climate march, I better call my MP, mm-hmm. I better do everything I can on my podcast to alert people to the absolute dire emergency that we are all in right now as far as carbon emissions and making sure our country is resilient, making sure that we have a secure water supply and a secure food supply and making sure that our country is ready to deal with climate refugee situation, um, then that's a part of making sure that my kids are okay. Mm. Yeah. Osha, we like to ask all of our guests this final question. As you well know, life yeah. can be pretty challenging and complicated. Who do you think is doing human really well? Oh, I don't know. It's my eldest. She's amazing. Yeah. She's just turned 17. 
she's when I was her age, my mates, their value system involved, my value system involved, you know, how can we secure beer, and how good good how good can we get at guitar? And that was it. Her mm-hmm. mates are like they're not you know they're not shy of socialising, but her mates are like okay, um, we like to party, but uh, also we like to work and study really hard and we also like to play you know we like to go to dance classes and we like to play team sports together so all her sports teams are her same group of friends like her group of mates play sports together water polo netball basketball soccer you name it they all dance together like her her mates have this incredible value system around and they study together mm. and like as as well as play really aggressive team sports together and they also hang out and socialize together and i you know she's nailing it She's absolutely nailing it, and I'm. I'm. It's amazing to watch her. She's this powerful young woman, and I, I love her to pieces. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.